Section 8 of Chapter 16 of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Carpenter. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 16, Section 8. The most important acts of this session were those which fixed the ecclesiastical constitution of Scotland. By the claim of right it had been declared that the authority of the bishops was an insupportable grievance, and William, by accepting the crown, had bound himself not to uphold an institution condemned by the very instrument on which his title to the crown depended. But the claim of right had not defined the form of the church government which was to be substituted for episcopacy, and during the stormy session held in the summer of 1689, the violence of the club had made legislation impossible. During many months, therefore, everything had been in confusion. One polity had been pulled down, and no other polity had been set up. In the western lowlands, the beneficed clergy had been so effectually rabbled that scarcely one of them had remained at his post. In Berwick, the three Lothians, and Stirling, most of the curates had been removed by the Privy Council for not obeying that vote of the convention which had directed all ministers of parishes on pain of deprivation to proclaim William and Mary King and Queen of Scotland. Thus, throughout a great part of the realm, there was no public worship except what was performed by Presbyterian divines, who sometimes officiated in tents, and sometimes without any legal right took possession of the churches. But there were large districts, especially on the north of the Tay, where the people had no strong feeling against episcopacy. And there were many priests who were not disposed to lose their manses and stipends for the sake of King James. Hundreds of the old curates, therefore, having been neither hunted by the populace or deposed by the council, still performed their spiritual functions. Every minister was, during this time of transition, free to conduct the services and to administer the sacraments as he thought fit. There was no controlling authority. The legislature had taken away the jurisdiction of bishops and had not established the jurisdiction of synods. To put an end to this anarchy was one of the first duties of the Parliament. Melville had, with the powerful assistance of Carstairs, obtained, in spite of remonstrances of the English Tories, authority to assent to such ecclesiastical arrangements as might satisfy the Scottish nation. One of the first laws which the Lord Commissioner touched with the scepter repealed the Act of Supremacy. He next gave royal assent to a law enacting that those Presbyterian divines who had been pastors of parishes in the days of the Covenant and had, after the Restoration, been ejected for refusing to acknowledge Episcopal authority should be restored. The number of those pastors had originally been about 350, but not more than 60 were still living. The estates then proceeded to fix the national creed. The confession of faith drawn up by the Assembly of Divines at Westminster, the longer and shorter catechism, and the directory were considered by every good Presbyterian as the standards of orthodoxy, and it was hoped that the legislature would recognize them as such. This hope, however, was in part disappointed. The confession was read at length, amidst much yawning, and adopted without alteration. But, when it was proposed that the catechisms and the directory should be taken into consideration, the ill-humor of the audience broke forth into murmurs. For that love of long sermons, which was strong in the Scottish 
commonality was not shared by the Scottish aristocracy. The Parliament had already been listening during three hours to dry theology, and was not inclined to hear anything more about original sin and election. The Duke of Hamilton said that the estates had already done all that was essential. They had given their sanction to a digest of the great principles of Christianity. The rest might well be left to the Church. The weary majority eagerly assented, in spite of the mutterings of some of the zealous Presbyterian ministers who had been admitted to hear the debate, and who sometimes could hardly restrain themselves from taking part in it. The memorable law which fixed the ecclesiastical constitution of Scotland was brought in by the Earl of Sutherland. By this law the synodic polity was re-established. The rule of the church was entrusted to the sixty ejected ministers who had just been restored, and to such other persons, whether ministers or elders, as the sixty should think fit to admit to a participation of power. The sixty and their nominees were authorized to visit all the parishes in the kingdom, and to turn out all ministers who were deficient in abilities, scandalous in morals, or unsound in faith. Those parishes which had, during the interregnum, been deserted by their pastors, or in plain words, those parishes which their pastors had been rabbled, were declared vacant. To the clause which re-established synodic government no serious opposition appears to have been made. But three days were spent in discussing the question whether the sovereign should have power to convoke and to dissolve ecclesiastical assemblies, and the point was at last left in dangerous ambiguity. Some other clauses were long and vehemently debated. It was said that the immense power given to the sixty was incompatible with the fundamental principle of the polity which the estates were about to set up. That principle was that all presbyters were equal, and that there ought to be no order of ministers of religion superior to the order of presbyters. What did it matter whether the sixty were called prelates or not, if they were to lord it with more prelatical authority over God's heritage? To the argument that the proposed arrangement was, in the very peculiar circumstances of the church, the most convenient that could be made, the objectors replied that such reasoning might suit the mouth of an Erastian, but that all orthodox Presbyterians held that the parity of ministers to be ordained by Christ, and that, where Christ had spoken, Christians were not at liberty to consider what was convenient. With much greater warmth and much stronger reason, the minority attacked the clause which sanctioned the lawless act of the Western fanatics. Surely, it was said, a rabbled curate might well be left to the severe scrutiny of the sixty inquisitors. If he was deficient in parts or learning, if he was loose in life, if he was heterodox in doctrine, those stern judges would not fail to detect and to depose him. They would probably think a game of bowls, a prayer borrowed from the English liturgy, or a sermon in which the slightest taint of Arminianism could be discovered, a sufficient reason for pronouncing his benefice vacant. Was it not monstrous, after constituting a tribunal from which he could scarcely hope for bare justice, to condemn him without allowing him to appear even before that tribunal, to condemn him without a trial, to condemn without an accusation? Did ever a grave senate, since the beginning of the world, treat as a man as a criminal merely because he had been robbed, pelted, hustled, dragged through snow and mire, and threatened with death if he returned to the house which was his by law? 
the Duke of Hamilton, glad to have so good an opportunity of attacking the new Lord Commissioner, spoke with great vehemence against this odious clause. We are told that no attempt was made to answer him, and, though those who tell us so were zealous Episcopalians, we may easily believe their report, for what answer was it possible to return? Melville, on whom the chief responsibility lay, sate on the throne in profound silence through the whole of this tempestuous debate. It is probable that his conduct was determined by considerations which prudence and shame prevented him from explaining. The state of the southwestern shires was such that it would have been impossible to put the rabbled ministers in possession of their dwellings and churches without employing a military force, without garrisoning every manse, without placing guards round every pulpit, and without handing over some ferocious enthusiasts to the provost-marshal, and it would be no easy task for the government to keep down by sword at once the Jacobites of the Highlands and the Coventers of the Lowlands. The majority, having made up their minds for reasons which could not be well produced, became clamorous for the question. No more debate, was the cry. We have heard enough. A vote, a vote. A question was put according to the Scottish form. Approve or not approve the article. Hamilton insisted that the question should be approve or not approve the rabbling. After much altercation, he was overruled and the clause passed. Only fifteen or sixteen members voted with him. He warmly and loudly exclaimed, amidst much angry interruption, that he was sorry to see a Scottish Parliament disgrace itself by such iniquity. He then left the house with several of his friends. It is impossible not to sympathize with the indignation which he expressed. Yet we ought to remember that it is the nature of injustice to generate injustice. There are wrongs which it is almost impossible to repair without committing other wrongs and such a wrong had been done to the people of Scotland in the preceding generation. It was because the Parliament of the Restoration had legislated in insolent defiance of the sense of the nation that the Parliament of the Revolution had to abase itself before the mob. When Hamilton and his adherents had retired, one of the preachers who had been admitted to the hall called out to the members who were near him, Fie, fie, do not lose time, make haste, get all over before he comes back. This advice was taken. Four or five sturdy prelatists stayed to give a last vote against presbytery. Four or five equally sturdy coventers stayed to mark their dislike of what seemed to them a compromise between the Lord and Baal. But the act was passed by an overwhelming majority. Two supplementary acts speedily followed. One of them, now happily repealed, required every office-bearer in every University of Scotland to sign the Confession of Faith and to give in his adhesion to the new form of church government. The other settled the important and delicate question of patronage. Knox had, in the first book of discipline, asserted the right of every Christian congregation to choose its own pastor. Melville had not, in the second book of discipline, gone quite so far, but he had declared that no pastor could lawfully be forced on an unwilling congregation. Patronage had been abolished by a covenanted parliament in 1649 and restored by a royalist parliament in 1661. What ought to be done in 1690 it was no easy matter to decide. Scarcely any question seemed to have caused so much anxiety to William. 
he had in his private instructions given the lord commissioner authority to assent to the abolition of patronage if nothing else would satisfy the estates but this authority was most unwillingly given and the king hoped that it would not be used it is he said the taking of men's property melville succeeded in effecting a compromise patronage was abolished but it was enacted that every patron should receive six hundred marks scots equivalent to thirty-five pounds sterling as a compensation for his rights the sum seems ludicrously small yet when the nature of the property and the poverty of the country are considered it may be doubted whether a patron would have made much more by going into the market the largest sum that any member ventured to propose was nine hundred marks little more than fifty pounds sterling the right of proposing a minister was given to a parochial council consisting of the protestant landowners and the elders the congregation might object to the person proposed and the presbytery was to judge of the objections this arrangement did not give to the people all the power to which even the second book of discipline had declared they were entitled but the odious name of patronage was taken away it was probably thought that the elders and landowners of a parish would seldom persist in nominating a person to whom the majority of the congregation had strong objections and indeed it did not appear that while the act of sixteen ninety continued in force the peace of the church was ever broken by disputes such as produced the schisms of seventeen thirty two of seventeen fifty six and of eighteen forty three montgomery had done all in his power to prevent the estates from settling the ecclesiastical polity of the realm he had incited the zealous covenanters to demand what he knew the government would never grant he had protested against all erastianism against all compromise dutch presbyterianism he said would not do for scotland she must have again the system of sixteen forty nine that system was deduced from the word of god it was the most powerful check that had ever been devised on the tyranny of wicked kings and it ought to be restored without addition or diminution his jacobite allies could not conceal their disgust and mortification at hearing him hold such language and they were by no means satisfied with the explanations which he gave them in private while they were wrangling with him on this subject a messenger arrived at edinburgh with important dispatches from james and from mary of modena these dispatches had been written in the confident expectation that the large promises of montgomery would be fulfilled and that the scottish estates would under his dexterous management declare for the rightful sovereign against the usurper james was so grateful for the unexpected support of his old enemies that he entirely forgot the services and disregarded the feelings of his old friends the three chiefs of the club rebels and puritans as they were had become his favorites annandale was to be a marquis governor of edinburgh castle and lord high commissioner montgomery was to be earl of Ayr and secretary of state ross was to be an earl and to command the guards an unprincipled lawyer named james stuart who had been deeply concerned in argyle's insurrection who had changed sides and supported the dispensing power who had then changed sides a second time and concurred in the revolution and who had now changed sides a third time and was scheming to bring about a restoration was to be lord advocate the privy council the court session the army were to be filled with whigs a council of five was appointed which all loyal subjects were to obey 
and in this council Annadale, Ross, and Montgomery formed the majority. Mary of Modena informed Montgomery that five thousand pounds sterling had been remitted to his order, and that five thousand more would soon follow. It was impossible that Balcaris and those who had acted with him should not bitterly resent the manner in which they were treated. Their names were not even mentioned. All that they had done and suffered seemed to have faded away from their master's mind. He had now given them fair notice that, if they should, at the hazard of their land and lives, succeed in restoring him, all that he had to give would be given to those who had deposed him. They, too, when they read his letters, knew, what he did not know when the letters were written, that he had been duped by the confident boasts and promises of the apostate Whigs. He imagined that the club was omnipotent at Edinburgh, and, in truth, the club had become a mere byword of contempt. The Tory Jacobites easily found pretexts for refusing to obey the Presbyterian Jacobites to whom the banished king had delegated his authority. They complained that Montgomery had not shown them all the dispatches which he had received. They affected to suspect that he had tampered with the seals. He called God Almighty to witness that the suspicion was unfounded. But oaths were very naturally regarded as insufficient guarantees by men who had just been swearing allegiance to a king against whom they were conspiring. There was a violent outbreak of passions on both sides. The coalition was dissolved. The papers were flung into the fire. And in a few days, the infamous triumvir, who had been, in the short space of a year, violent Williamites and violent Jacobites, became Williamites again, and attempted to make their peace with the government by accusing each other. Ross was the first who turned informer. After the fashion of the school in which he had been bred, he committed this base action with all the forms of sanctity. He pretended to be greatly troubled in mind sent for a celebrated Presbyterian minister named Dunlop, and bemoaned himself piteously, There is a load on my conscience. There is a secret which I know I ought to disclose, but I cannot bring myself to do it. Dunlop prayed long and fervently. Ross groaned and wept. At last it seemed that heaven had been stormed by the violence of supplication. The truth came out, and many lies with it. The divine and the penitent then returned thanks together. Dunlop went with the news to Melville. Ross set off for England to make his peace at court, and performed his journey safely, though some of his accomplices, who had heard of his repentance, but had been little edified by it, had laid plans for cutting his throat by the way. At London he protested, on his honor and on the word of a gentleman, that he had been drawn in, that he had always disliked the plot, and that Montgomery and Ferguson were the real criminals. End of section 8. Recording by Richard Carpenter in Seattle, Washington.